Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and with me have my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on, Cecil? Richie, I'm suffering from such a serious Thanksgiving hangover, man. It's it's not even funny. <laughs> too much turkey, too much food, too much too much everything, man. There's just too much. So, what does someone from the Caribbean eat on Thanksgiving, an American holiday? What do we eat? Um, I mean, the, the most of the same stuff that you guys eat. You know, I think the only thing that's different, we add a lot of some of our food. So there'll be you know curry, there'll be goat, there'll be uh, we make a lot of macaroni pie, you know, plantains, that type of stuff. But other than that, it's, you know, it's still turkey. It's still, there's still cranberry sauce. There's still pecan pie and pumpkin pie and apple pie. And there's a lot of pie. Um, <laughs> 3.14. Yeah, there's a lot of pie, a lot of fish, you know, that type of stuff. But other than that, it's, you know, typical stuffing, turkey, cranberry sauce, that type of stuff. So my, my family is, our heritage is from Mexico and um, on my wife's side, it's Cuban. So it's very similar. Uh, where you'll have the turkey and the mashed potatoes and the green beans and all that stuff. and But my mom makes her enchilada sauce, and then we just dump enchilada sauce kind of over everything. And uh, that's kind of uh, kind of our difference at our house, um, being mainly Americanized by now. And um, at my wife's house, we, you know, we had the black beans and rice and plantains and no pork. So there's no pork this year was kind of disappointed but they did have the turkey and the stuffing and they they had the uh tres leches and um they had this like kind of um it was like a rice pudding as well so the desserts are a little bit different but essentially it's it's still thanksgiving so today we're gonna have part two of our conversation with mr david haney so a couple of weeks ago we had david on and he spoke a little bit about diversity and some other things and so now we're gonna have part two yeah, part two part two of mr david haney so a little bit again about David. So David, he is a core team engineering manager at Stack Overflow. He practices servant leadership by solving problems and improving processes. Previously, he was a lead developer on Fanatics e-commerce platform, which hosts over 10,000 websites, including the NFL shop, the official online shop of the NFL, and NBAstore.com. David is the creator of Dash, an open source distributed caching framework. In his spare time, he spends it brewing and drinking beer, playing video games, and watching movies at old school one screen theaters with his wife. He can be found on the web at HaneyCodes.com or on Twitter at HaneyCodes. This episode was recorded on September 29, 2015, and now our conversation with David Haney. And now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. One of the things for at least at least for us in the Caribbean, the people are very vocal in terms of what happens in the government. You know, it's it's very regular that you'll see, you know, in, even if you just don't agree with what's in the news, what's being said on the radio, people very quickly like stand up a crowd in front of your door and knock it in and be like, okay, no, you can't do that anymore. You need to stop it, right? And it it typically gets a little aggressive, but I mean, it's it's to the point that certain things can't happen unless it's okay with the general populace. And, and most people are very well knowledgeable about what's actually happening. I think what's happening, and, and probably to, in addition to what you're talking about, is because there's so many ways to consume information, 
like we we see what's happening on social media and then there's YouTubes and we have this going on on TV. And so you're just getting stuff. You're getting all of this stuff. And I think it's being becoming very hard to filter out what's quality information and what's not. It, the signal to noise is really bad. There's a ton of noise on the internet because anybody's an authority. Stand up a website, make it look professional, boom, it's, it's authoritative info. You know, I've been to wiki pages that cite articles that cite the wiki page. Yeah. Like circular <laughs> logic. Neither of them is correct. It's just somehow some conglomerate got together or some organ and put that together. And when you when you have all this information coming at you and your brain is prone to kind of accept the easy answer as opposed to take the you know, the effort, exert some effort and really do the diligence to figure out what's actually happening, then you end up with these like vaccines cause autism movements that, that polarize people and, and distract everybody from potentially more useful issues. You know, which depends on what you what you define as useful. But it's it's crazy to me. That's that was a big political thing. You know, you're talking about moving from Canada to America. Not even political, like a social thing. You know, in Canada, people seem to be a little more willing to do the diligence and, and get the facts behind what's what's being talked about. And I think a part of that is the CRTC, which you know regulates what the media kind of can and can't say and do. But in America. Free speech is, you know, and Canada has free speech on the personal level, but America kind of has this corporations or people sort of thing where free speech can also apply to them and so they can spread misinformation and so on. No, but I think it's important that we address things like this as a society in general because one of the things I always do is I always think about what's going to happen to my son when he gets older and like how is he going to consume information? Like even today, like the way he consumes information today is very different to how I do. I got to think about what, what are we leaving behind for them as an example or as a template to how, how things are done and are things handled. And, and if we're going to go down this route of, hey, we're just going to generate a lot of noise, I really not pay attention to the facts, then we're, we're leading them down the wrong path, right? Like we really need to, to kind of help be the guides, right? Like this is our parents and our forefathers before us kind of helps guide us towards what actually made sense, right? Like we kind of need to be those types of people, right? And kind of help our future go down that type of road. Yeah, I have a really... I don't know what it is, contrasting point of view, right? Like, I'm in the technology industry, as are we all. I'm very passionate about it. I've been very fortunate to see some success in it, for sure. And I sort of hate what technology is becoming at the same time. You know, I, every time I go to a restaurant, I see these people sitting at tables, and they, they couldn't be bothered to have a conversation. They're just staring at their phones, and they're, you know, on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and whatever else. And, and don't get me wrong, like, I'm looking for them, and so that's what I see. There's probably people there that are also having conversations, but it makes me absolutely crazy how these these social apps and social networks are creating this sort of generation of of vanity. You know, it's all selfies and self-importance and look at what I've done and look at who I am. And you're nobody unless 37 people like your Instagram photo kind of thing. And I think it's ironically antisocial. And I think that's really damaging society because people, you know, when I grew up, if I wanted to hang out with my buddy, I either rode my bike to his house and knocked on the door and said, is Samir here? Let's go do something. Or I called him on my you know, rotary phone or maybe touchstone. I don't even remember what the 80s were like. It was probably touchstone. But you know, i call him and, and ask. His mom would pick up. And I'd be like, hey, is he there? Like, Can I chat with him? And now it's like, I don't remember the last time somebody called me and invited me to anything. I don't know about you guys. But it's been years probably. Everything's a Facebook group event or like a calendar invite. Not that I'm faulting that, but it's just like it's becoming so antisocial and impersonal and yet so vain and self-centered. And I think that creates a really unhealthy personality. And I think we're going to start to see the fruits of that in, you know, as this current generation becomes eligible to enter the workforce. I just don't think it's going to be good personally. 
And you, you think about, you know, a couple of years back, that's, that's how I spoke to my friends, right? That's how we had real conversations. You know, that's not, we didn't do 140 characters of text. And we didn't do the Facebook images and the Snapchats and that type of stuff. We actually interacted on a personal level. And, you know, and even in that, right, it's, it's just healthy for, for your psyche, right? To actually just have a real conversation with a person versus I'm going to send you this delayed message and you'll answer it in an hour or two hours or tomorrow. Or maybe you answer it in five minutes. You know what I mean? Like the exchange between people have become very different. If you especially want to notice that, work a remote job. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. amazing how much it breaks your brain. It doesn't matter how good my company is. Like at Stack Overflow, we're really good at doing remote work. Everybody's remote. We're remote first culture. It doesn't matter if you're in the office or not. You're having your meetings on Google Hangouts. You know, you're making it accessible to the remote workers. But I'll tell you, like, three days in this house and I've got the cabin fever going. And I'm either going to, like, start wielding an axe at people or I'm going to have to go out and do something and see some human beings. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, like, it's amazing how much the human mind needs personal interaction in the flesh. And it's kind of like Wally, where I just see the society becoming this thing where everybody's disconnected and they only talk through the internet and talk through digital. And I think that's really... I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I hope that this this goes down and uh, on the books is correct. I mean, I hope it's incorrect, but I think it'll be correct. I think there's going to be a huge spike in depression diagnoses in the next 10 years just because people aren't getting that need fulfilled for human interaction and for lack of better description, kind of love. Like it's, you know, it's not like the kind of love that you have with a significant other, but people just need to feel loved and have this like personal group of people or even just one person that they can, they can be around and interact with from time to time and, you know, remote work just doesn't offer that. Yeah, I know one of the things that, that I miss from from working with a team that's actually in the building is, like, it's so easy for me to turn my chair around or, like, look down the hallway and be like, hey, what do you think of this? Could you take a look at this? You know, hey, I got this idea. Like, let me know if I'm completely off my mind or not. Versus having to go on Google or Hangouts and sending somebody a message. And then maybe they're like, okay, I'll get back to you in two hours. But at that point in time, like my mind has already gone somewhere else. Like I've either already committed to doing what I'm going to do, or I'm going to try and do something else. That deferment of of dealing with your thoughts, right, and what you're what you're what you're working on in real time, to me, I think is very detrimental to work. At least for me personally, in the way that I like to work, you know, I like I like to be able to bounce ideas around people and try different things and, and experiment. And for me, that works so much better if. Like, you don't have to be sitting down at my desk and we don't have to be peer, pro- peer programming or sharing a keyboard. But if I could, like, look over the hump and be like, hey, swing over here real quick. Let's just talk about this. Like, I work so much better that way. I describe it as us becoming the asynchronous society. You know, nobody does anything in real time. You drop a note for somebody and say, hey, you want to go to the movie at 5? They get back to you two hours later. You still got three hours to be at the movie. Nobody calls anybody. You show up at 5.02 and you go to the movie. And, and that's a good scenario, you know. I don't even, I haven't been in the dating scene for years and I don't want to be, but I actually had a really cool conversation all over the weekend. It was my birthday last Friday and I was at the bar, ironically not drinking, but I was there with a couple of friends of mine to celebrate my birthday. And one of my friends, whose name is Tyrone, is single. Uh, and we talked a little bit about what it's like to be single in the modern age. And he talked about how apps like Tinder are sort of perverting the courtship phase that used to exist in society. And this makes me feel like an old man complaining about this. But, you know, back when I, back in my day, when I was a young back boy. Back in my day. Yeah, exactly. Back in my day, I, you know, would have to, like, send notes to, to a girl or, like, 
you know, do something to show some courtship, like ask them out or, or go talk to them, you know, maybe buy them a drink at the bar or something. And now with these apps, it's, it's he basically described it as like, oh, you look like, his, you know, you look like somebody I'd want to, you know, jump into bed with. Why don't we meet up and do that? And then afterwards, maybe we'll talk about if we even like each other. And it's this totally crazy, in, you know, depersonalization and impersonal effect on relationships that, that I think is also damaging the psyche quite a bit probably although having not done it myself i don't know i think the funny thing about that is we've created a system of technology supposedly to help us communicate better and it actually makes us communicate less yeah and certainly less personally that's that's the crazy part of it it's like the more that we develop better and better applications the less we talk to humans and interact with them you know look at siri and look at google now and look at Whatever the terrible Microsoft version. Sorry, I love you, Microsoft. Please continue to supply your stuff. Um, <laughs> Bing. Series Bing. No. Cortana. Cortana. The one. Yay. I'm not even drunk and I can't get that straight. Uh, you know, every, every major company's got their digital talking, per, for lack of a better description, personal assistant. But the more you talk to them, the less you talk to humans. You know, back in the 50s on, on Madison Avenue or something, somebody was like, you know, Whoever my secretary is, please schedule me for a 5 p.m. with so-and-so. And now you're just like, hey, Siri, put 5 p.m. on my calendar. i got to do whatever. No human interaction. You could even say, hey, Siri, invite so-and-so probably. And they would send out, it would send out like a, a calendar invite to them. And you still never talk to them. And yes, it's super easy to communicate that way because I just organized a 5 p.m. event and invited you to it. And you know exactly where and when and so on. But we never had a conversation about it. And I think that starts to wear over time. I just don't see it as healthy. You know, another thing that I've, I've always complained about a little bit was, so when, when we were younger, you know, every time we came to the United States for vacation or anything like that, the first thing we would do is we'd go to a gas station and we'd buy one of those fold-out maps. <laughs> yeah. So my dad will drive, you know, my mom or I will have the fold-out map, and we're looking at the roads and trying to figure out where we're going to go. And, you know, it, it didn't really seem important at the time, but, you know, I'm talking about the map, my mom's looking at the map. We're all looking at it together and we're talking about it and we're, we're making a plan as to where we're going to go, what we're going to do and what's the best way to take and like what sites we're going to see along the way and all this types of stuff. And what actually happens is the next time we'd come and visit that area, we may or may not need that map again because we all remember it or some part of it or remember the, the, the locales or the different sites and whatnot. And so now I have, like I can just pick up the car and I can just go drive around like I live there. Today, I'd say there's some parts of, of Fort Lauderdale. I live up here. There's some parts of Fort Lauderdale that I don't know how to get to if I didn't have Google on my phone. And it's kind of sad, right? Like certain things that we used to just automatically commit to memory, like we, we don't really do that anymore. And so I, I, I wonder, is, is this technology really helping us learn? Are we getting better? Are we becoming more efficient or are we just retaining less information in our brains? I think we're becoming more efficient and less knowledge and less learned. And less skilled. You know, it took some skill to navigate a map back in the day because the map was printed one way and you had to assume that if you're going south, you had to assess it upside down. Right. Or you had to physically turn it over, but then your turns were all screwed up too. But even still, or were they screwed up? I don't even remember. I haven't touched the map since I was like 19. But <laughs> long story short, you know, it took some skills to do that. Basically, there's a whole friggin' industry around that. And I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's like, 
it's like cartography. Geo- yeah, cartography. There was a freaking art about that, and you know there were people that I think that's actually dry maps, but navigating. It is dry maps. Yeah. Yeah, but then navigating. There was an industry around drawing the maps to start with, which is now I'm sure defunct out of business for the most part. And there was also, and you know, and those people don't have skills other than drawing maps probably because they specialized in it and gotten so good at it. So it's like now, what do they do? Right. You know, there's a friggin' car that draws the current map. It just drives around town, some kid in the seat for 12 bucks an hour, and boom, it takes photos, and they've got their up-to-date map. And, yeah, that's efficient. It's way more efficient than hiring somebody to draw the map, but at the same time, it's, it's, not, it's not a skill. The person doesn't really need a skill other than driving the car, which isn't all that specialized a skill. A lot of people have it. And, I, you know, I see it a lot with, with the current technology, especially in learning to... To, you know, to have discourse with actual proper grammar and spelling, like everything's lead speak and short form because of Twitter and everything. I feel like a lot of people that I meet that are, you know, under the age of 18 currently, not that I meet a ton of them, but through family gatherings and whatnot, just seems like they don't know how to spell or write or read or anything anymore. It's barely even necessary. I don't remember the last time I wrote anything down. You just type it all in or punch it into your phone or whatever, or you just talk to your phone and it spells the words correctly for you. But then you have all those really annoying things like whole nother and um, what's the other one? I can't think of it right now. It's the double negative that makes me crazy. Irregardless. Oh, Irregardless. yes. That's a big yeah. Miami. Irreg- These kids. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's huge in Miami. Super big. Irregardless. Things like that. All those, all those supposedly, all those sort of. Supposedly. All yes. those broken so- words. And it's like, but nobody's correcting them and the computer gets it right. You say supposedly, I'm sure it spits out supposedly. And it just, I don't know, I just feel like people aren't learning skills, you know. And the skills they are learning are not, not skilled skills. Like driving a car is, is something that pretty much everybody can do. Cartography, I would not know where to start. I'm sure it took years to learn it, and now it doesn't even exist. What's it been like for you to make that transition from a developer to a manager? That's a great question, and that's probably the question I get most often these days. I wrote a blog post about it um, as a result of that, and I kind of discussed... You know, just the lessons I've learned so far and and how all that shakes down. And I don't know if it applies to everybody, but for me, the biggest thing has been defining success differently and the kind, you know, the type of work that you do and just sort of being honestly just kind of being perceived as doing no work. Because, you know, as a developer, humans coming by and talking to you is a distraction. You know, you wear your headphones in the cube farm as much as you can, you keep your eyes you know, on the road and you do three or four hours of coding at a single time and really get into the groove and the zone and that works out great. But as a manager, like if you do that, you're doing the opposite of your job. People are your job. So you, you have to really not get so focused on other things that you overlook your people and you need to always make sure that you're, you're looking at your people and, and taking care of them. And then you know, to that end, it's, it's just a different kind of problem because in programming, often things can be solved. You have a problem, you think of a good solution, you implement your algorithm, and boom, you, you can measure the problem. In fact, sometimes you can measure it so well that you can write a 100 unit test for it to show that it works correctly. And you could say, great, I solved it, I'm going to move on to the next thing. But as a manager, a lot of the problems that you work on are people soft skills problems, not code hard skills problems. And those take, kind of like the topic of diversity, they can take years to change because people are creatures of habit, of course, and are shaped by their society much more than their manager from 9 to 5. And so it becomes really hard to feel successful because where you once were this go-getter developer who was knocking out problems left and right and solving real company issues and getting sort of recognized for that, as a manager, you do almost all of your work individually in private because you're not going to air somebody's dirty laundry and, and work out their issues in front of your team. So you're doing it behind the scenes. 
you're doing it on intangible problems that take years to solve. And so it's really easy to feel like you're not really making a difference or, or working anything or improving anything. That's the biggest struggle is, is feeling that success, that accomplishment. And then you get that sort of indirectly. Sometimes you get it through people saying, you know, good job, or I notice your team's doing this better, or somebody on your team's improving. That's great. But you don't get that same satisfaction of solving, you know, knocking out all the items in your sprint, for example. So have you missed it? I do. I do miss it. Like, I really like management. It's an interesting kind of work. It's a very different kind of work, but I do miss programming. And I think that's where the beer brewing has picked up is that it solves and satiates that logical problem solving thing. You know, you can do this really precise thing and make it work. It's, it's a funny balance, right? Like when we were all 20, we were all probably, you know, go-getters who for our first company worked 14 hours a day, you know, very passionately trying to prove ourselves and just get something done. And then when we came home from work, you know, we worked another five hours on our open source projects and tried to, tried to make things happen. And I feel like life just starts to become, for some people, but not all people, and I don't know which one is right, life starts to become this like important priority. And for me, it's like I've, I've realized that all the things that I could accomplish in the world and all the businesses I could start are not nearly as fun to me as brewing a beer, going to the movies, hanging out at a craft brewery, spending time with my wife and my dog. And that's something that I see as, as more important than entrepreneurial efforts at this time. And so I'd like to tell you that I keep up pretty adequately with my programming chops in my spare time, but not really, you know, not as much as I'd want to. I put that time towards the things that have become more of a priority to me. And I imagine if I ever were to have children, that would certainly top the list too. Yeah, I uh, kind of went through the same transition a, few, a lot of years back, I guess. And um, after about five years of doing project management and that type of stuff, I said, is this what I really want to do? Do I really want to solve other people's problems or do I want to take care of problems that I own and things that I want to do? For me, talking to the C-level executives were gr- was great. Working with my team was great. Working with the users was great. Dealing with middle management was so horrible. It was so <laughs> terrible. And it left this really bad taste in my mouth where everybody in that middle management track was in this constant power struggle. I, as a project manager, didn't really control anything. was just a steward of projects. You get caught in that, that power struggle. And I said, enough's enough. Let me go back to technology because that's where I feel my, my passion really lies. And um, I'm a much more sane person <laughs> nice. because of it. Yeah, um, people problems can be hard. You know, if you if you ever, I think every programmer gets to a point where they're frustrated with the project they're working on, and they just can't get to the solution they like, or they don't like the people they're working on it with, or they don't like the code that they had to kind of clean up that was somebody else's code, or whatever. You know, there's always gripes to be had in in any profession, especially programming. Well, I don't even know if it's especially. It's the only profession I know, but it seems like there's gripes in programming. And if you think that's fun. You know, try having to do the behind-the-scenes work of tuning people up and and working with them on their problems and solving. You know, first convincing them and getting their buy-in on things that you think are shortcomings or issues in their in their abilities, and then getting them to improve those things. You know, and even if it comes to it, getting to the point where you have to drastically alter somebody's life by terminating employment, like that's not fun. That's not the kind of thing. I, I think that some people think that managers go home and are like. 
high five, I fired 38 people today. Yeah, break out the, you know, Dom Perignon. And it's like that kind of stuff weighs on you. You end up, one thing I noticed is I used to take my programming work home with me all the time, you know, just sort of fanatically obsessed with it. And I would just do work at work and then research work at home or maybe do work at home. And now whether I even want to or not, I take my work home because it's emotional work. You know, when you're criticizing people or giving them constructive feedback or even just sort of fixing issues or even kind of trying to get them away from that that path that leads to on him you know to terminating employment you take those things home like we're not i don't i can't speak for everybody but i'm certainly not a soulless terrible human being and it doesn't i take no joy in those kinds of conversations and that stuff can be really challenging and i think is a lot of what you know when developers kind of reach that fork in the road and they're like do i go management do i stay developer do i go architect kind of path i think that a lot of the decision comes down to how much they really want to have to deal with that stuff and it's not for everybody, and it's certainly not a glamorous job. That much I can promise you. You get none of the credit and all of the problems. <laughs> yeah, I know when I had to let go my first person, it, 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 you're right. It just weighs on you, and you're like, well, how, how am I going to deal with this, right? I mean, we're just drastically changing someone's life. I, I, I did a little research and, and got a lot of opinions on, on how to do that. But in the end, it's this person may be a great programmer this person may be great at what they do but they can't work in that organization and things just aren't working out and sometimes you just have to let them go so they could go to an organization where they can thrive you know that's that's kind of how i choose to view that not to be cold or anything but and i and i didn't really realize it until i was laid off my first time right and i was i was in management the whole thing and i was laid off and I choose to view me being laid off as my CIO choosing to uh, let me go and let me grow and thrive because I couldn't do that there. There was, there was too, many, too much bad blood in me trying to get projects done and stepping on people's toes that I, I needed to go somewhere else and thrive. And I think me being let go was really being the best thing for me after 11 years in one place. I was thrusted out into into the real world, and I've did a lot of of good things for myself, and I grew a ton in that transition period. And you know, sometimes you know the people who are in our organizations they just don't work out, and we just got to let them grow somewhere else. That's that's exactly it. There's this false dichotomy that people fall into of good or bad employee, fired or not fired, and really the conversation tends to be in my eyes as well, and I I show you a perspective, you know, most people that get hired are ultimately usually some kind of good developer, even great developer. Because if you're, you know, if your company is doing the right things and co-testing people to hire them, then just logically the people that get on board and get into your company are able to code. And that's what you need. And so they satisfy that condition. But sometimes people struggle with the unique aspects of the company. You know, with Stack Overflow, something I've seen some people struggle with is remote work. It's a very different thing to get up, you know, potentially be able to stay in your underwear and not shower till 5 p.m. and have a TV, <laughs> you know, never have your boss come look over your shoulder and have a TV that you're watching movies on all day and all of a sudden you didn't get any work done, you know, as opposed to get up, make a coffee, get in, you know, rush hour, be mad at the commute, get to work, and then get into that sort of siloed work mentality where you're at work doing work and they keep the distractions deliberately away from you. You know, it's empowering, but it's really hard for some people to adapt to. You know, at that point, you're not talking, you might be talking about a person who's failing at their job, but you're not talking about them being a failure of a developer. You're just talking about the fit not being right. You know, is it 
company, you know, is the person good for the company? Is the person good for the team? Is the person good for the manager? These are all good questions. You know, we don't usually end up asking, is the person a good programmer? We end up asking, are they a good, you know, fit at the company? And I don't mean like cultural fit. I mean like, is the way we work the way they work? And can they get on board with that? You know, my unsolicited advice to other managers or future managers, if you ever do end up, and probably when you do end up letting people go, think about all the people that you know that have been laid off or fired, probably self-included, and then think about how many of them ended up homeless on the street with their lives ruined. You know, it's it's pretty much zero. There's always some kind of work that the person is suited for that they'll do. At, you know, in a, in a current time where there's five jobs per developer, sometimes, you know, you're letting somebody go and the next day they're working across the street for more money. And then That's they right. even come back and thank you for giving them that kickstart where they're able to, you know, pursue something, you know, like you were saying, Richie, pursue something that is just more suited to, to their style and, and lets them be a little more free and successful. Yeah, I think that's important. And one of the things that I tell some of my students is you got to make sure that you, you do what you love or at least do something that you're, you're really passionate about or you like. Because if you don't, you got you to gotta go to work, you're going to be miserable and you're not going to do a good job. You're not going to want to do a good job. And at that point, you know, what's, does, it, does it even really make sense anymore? Yep. And there's a lot of people that, that leave the programming industry for that reason. And there's a lot of people that come to that programming industry later in life for that reason. We have an employee named Alex Warren who actually got a degree in physics, which he self-describes as turns out it was useless. And you know, decided that he was very interested in programming. And so at a later stage in his life, competing with people who are up and coming, born and raised with a dad who had a computer in front of him at the age of three, you know, he was able to break in and become really good at programming because it was something that he loved to do as a passion and not just a, a paycheck. And, you know, conversely, there's people that get into the industry, realize it's not for them, and then go to something that's that's much more interesting to them. And I respect both of those. I don't think that programming is the be-all, end-all, and I certainly don't think it's some kind of super race or, or egalitarian better class of people. In fact, in some ways, programmers are some of the worst people I know, self-included. You know, yep. We just don't, you know, we're catty, we're kind of gossipy, we don't necessarily always think about others. And I don't blame the people because this, this uh, industry tends to value and promote the rock star, self-centered, egocentric mentality. And so what happens when you value that? Well, you get a bunch of egocentric rock star types who don't care about others and only worry about themselves. And that's not necessarily a good thing. And so, you know, the people that find an industry that's more appealing to them, I totally understand. So other than brewing bears, what else, what else kind of, kind of things that you get involved in? Lately, I've been getting into golf. uh, You know, I was talking about my personality and how I always defer everything to next week. I've been talking to my wife for like five years. I've been living here about five years. And so the whole time I've been talking to her since I moved here. You know, in Canada, you can only golf three months of the year, but I got a good 10 games in per year, and I really liked golfing. And don't get me wrong, I'm not good at it, but I like to drink beer and hit the ball around. And, you know, probably in that order, because it gets even funnier. <laughs> but then the thing is, I moved down here to basically what is the golf capital of the freaking world, if you ask me. You know, we have amazing you know, PGA courses here and all kinds of insane options at reasonable prices, and I just never golfed. And I was talking to my wife about it over the summer, and I was like, man, like, I got to get into golfing this year. This is the year I'm going to finally do it, and I'm sure it would have continued that way till next year if she hadn't, for my birthday last week, bought me a set of used clubs. So last Friday, I woke up to a nice set of clubs that she got off Craigslist, which, trust me, if you're going to learn to golf, get used clubs, because the first thing you're going to do is dent the heck out of them. And she said, you know, happy birthday. Now you can go golfing. And I did. I went Saturday night to to the local driving range at UNF, which 
was really a lot of fun, and I plan to go back and and pick that up some more. You know, going forward, the barrier to entry has been lowered. It's what it really is. I'm always passionate about things, but if it has a barrier to entry, I tend to shy away from it. So she lowered the barrier by giving me all the tools I need and said, "Have at it." And now I'll probably pick that up quite a bit. The other thing I really love to do is, and what I'm really a fanatic about is movies. Um, And I don't mean like watch them in your house movies. I'm a big fan of the movie going experience. I'm kind of a hipster in that sense too. I don't go to like AMC or read, you know, any of the Cinemark type chains. I go to these two local theaters in Jacksonville. One is called Sunray and the other one's called San Marco. And they have just an amazing experience. They're those kind of, you know, early 1900s one screen theaters, really nice cushy chairs. They serve beer, they make pizza, they have good popcorn. And I don't even really care what they're showing half the time. I'll just drop 10 bucks, go sit down, maybe get a pitcher of beer and a popcorn or a single beer or water, whatever it is, and just go watch a movie. And that whole experience to me, you know, is amazing. And I could actually circle this whole thing back to our prior conversation because what really got me off the major chains was the advance of the cell phone. You know, I got to a point where I'd go to a movie and there'd be people on their phones the whole time talking or texting and this oh. giant light would be shining and everybody's experienced this crap. But you, you're sort of passive aggressively pissed off about it, but you don't really have the guts to stand up and be like, turn that <laughs> off, you know, there's your bongo drums. Um, <laughs> and it just, it just drove me absolutely insane. And so the thing that both of these theaters have in common is an absolute no talking, no texting policy. Basically, if you take your cell phone out while you're watching the movie, or if you talk to your neighbor in excess, they will stop the film, turn on the lights, kick your ass out, ban you, and then resume the film. What? And I love it. I love it. It's the greatest thing I've ever experienced. Because to me, there's nothing worse. Like, I have maybe three pet peeves in my life, and one of them is people that talk and text in movie theaters. It makes me insane. Did you spend money to be seen at the theater on social media, or did you spend money to enjoy, you know, the, the sense... The sense experience, the sensory experience of going to a movie. You hear it, you see it, you know, you don't necessarily smell it, except that you kind of associate popcorn with movies. You know, you certainly can feel it. And, you know, you you can taste it with the food and stuff. You get that movie theater popcorn in the movies. And it makes me crazy that people take that for granted. So I basically strictly go to these two theaters and, and I really love that experience. I probably go about once a week. That reminds me of a quote on Firefly where uh, the, the Shepherd book is talking to Mal. <clears throat> and he essentially says, you take advantage of her, you're going to burn in a very special place of hell, a uh, place where they reserve for child molesters and people who talk to theater. Awesome. It's <laughs> exactly it. It's exactly it. And I just remember the corollary scene of that where he's like, oh, I'm going to go to the special place. As the episode right. continues. Yeah. No, it. I don't know. It's just a button for me. And I like that these two options. I also like supporting local business. You know, Walmart's got enough money. And I don't think they treat their employees well. And to me, it's important to, to support and, and be a person of your word. And so these people treat their employees well. They offer a good experience at a reasonable price. I'm happy to give them my money over the big chain. We'd like to thank David for being a guest on our show. It was definitely a pleasure speaking with him. Remember to tell your friends about the show and leave a comment at the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com or on Twitter at AFTK Podcast. You can also follow me at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you'll get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to Away From The Keyboard. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have Xamarin Software Developer Joel Martinez. I've taken my son boxing a couple times and I go rock climbing with him. And one of the things I like to tell them is that uh, they have to be ready for the zombie apocalypse. 
Joel. 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 Big Joel. Big, big Joel. Next week. See ya. want to thank you for listening to Away From The Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego! Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Away from the Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name's Richie Rump, and with me are my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on, Cecil? To be honest with you, Richie, I'm suffering from such a serious Thanksgiving hangover. It is not even funny. And you're slurring your words. It's so much of a I hangover. Cannot, I cannot tell you how hard <laughs> this is for me right now. So much food. Cannot speak to Mike. <laughs> falling, 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 falling. And that's the episode for today. Thanks for joining us on Away From The Keyboard. <laughs> there you go. There's a bonus track. <laughs> <laughs> Complete and utter nonsense. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is what happens when we record past 11 o'clock. We're like gremlins, right? <laughs> Just don't feed us after after midnight. Don't don't record after 11. Away from the keyboard. All right, let's go again. <laughs>